Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Welcome to episode 41 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training programs on the ALPO. I want to thank everybody for downloading and listening. This episode, we have Sanjay Lamahe. He's the, uh, uh, one of our scientists that work with the ALPO and help us with our pro-am uh, contributions, so it's going to be a very interesting talk. The ALPO... The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena, and we publish them in detailed reports in the quarterly publication called the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. We also call it the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as a dollar a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. And for a monthly donation of $10, you receive the Novice of Her Observer's Handbook. And if you really feel generous, you can help us out by giving us $35 a month, where you will receive producer credits and also a one-year membership to the ALPL. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. If you're interested in joining the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And the ALPO and the Observer's Notebook podcast are both on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy or search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please rate and review us and subscribe. That way you will never miss another episode of the podcast. And now... The Observer's Notebook. Alright, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Our special guest today is Sanjay Lemehe. He's a board member of the ALPO, an assistant coordinator and scientific advisor for the ALPO Jupiter section. Welcome to the podcast, Sanjay. Uh, thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to uh, talk to you and I uh, apologize that uh, I missed uh, the last uh, couple of board meetings. Uh, the schedule just hasn't worked out for me. And uh, lately, I've also fallen off uh, from uh, Jupiter. Uh, I've been focusing um, pretty much on uh, Venus myself because of uh, the ongoing missions uh, from Europe, uh, ESA's Venus Express, and currently I'm working with uh, JAXA's uh, Akatsuki mission to Venus and trying to work on uh, future missions to Venus. So pretty much uh, it's uh, Venus... Uh, all the time for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Venus is uh, better well-placed than Jupiter right now, too. <laughs> well, there's one big advantage. We can get to Venus much quicker than we can get to Jupiter. <laughs> this, this is very true. So how did you get involved with the ALPL? Oh, that's a long story. Uh, we have time. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. 
you know, I, I came to, um, uh, let me just backtrack and uh, say that uh, uh, the uh, professional amateur collaboration, I don't know exactly when it began uh, uh, from the beginning because, uh, you know, pretty much uh, when astronomy uh, with telescopes began, uh, you could call almost uh, everyone an amateur astronomer. Right. <laughs> Uh, so it certainly goes uh, a long ways back, but then I think in the uh, 50s when uh, there was uh, a growing interest in uh, exploring the planets uh, using uh, uh, spacecraft, the interest grew and there was an international planetary patrol as some of you might uh, recall. <clears throat> uh, at that time uh, most of the telescopes uh, were still using uh, uh, plates or film. Uh, using uh, standard astronomical uh, filters and so it was probably uh, a uh, professional uh, collaboration more than amateurs at that point in the 50s but they collected a lot of data which uh, still exists uh, at McDonald Observatory I think in some form but they have Bill uh, 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 Cochran I think and Anita Cochran uh, were custodians of that for some years we tried to get that data set digitized somehow, but uh, uh, effort didn't go very far. Uh, but then fast forward uh, to the post-Voyager dates and uh, Shoemaker uh, Levy kind of came along. Uh, and of course it was discovered, uh, uh, it became known because of uh, the collaboration between David Levy and uh, the Shoemakers, Carolyn and uh, Jean. Uh, but it was a graduate uh, student in Uppsala who should uh, deserve some credit for having captured the first images of that comet. He was observing from the uh, Swedish uh, solar telescope uh, in the Canary Islands uh, on uh, La Palma. Unfortunately, uh, uh, he had consumed some food from the cafeteria and uh, he had a terrible case of food poisoning. Really? So he couldn't uh, process the data until about two or three days later. And by that time, uh, the shoemakers uh, and uh, uh, David Levy had, of course, uh, uh, discovered it and uh, sent the uh, uh, notice to the uh, Brian Master, I think. And so. Uh, Mats Lindgren was a student who missed out on the discovery just because he felt sick. Oh uh, my goodness, so you got to be careful what you eat if you're going to discover something. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's not very high. I think it's only like 24, 2500 meters. I've been there actually subsequently. And we ended up uh, collaborating. He uh, <laughs> was doing his PhD thesis uh, in uh, Uppsala. Uh, I saw his pictures of the comet and I said, my God, where did you get those beautiful pictures? They were the sharpest images I've seen. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, once they became uh, available, I, did, uh, I mean, uh, they were on the web, so I wrote to the first name, which, which was his thesis advisor's name. And for the life of me, right now, I, I have a mental block, I can't remember it. I waited for a day, didn't get any response, so I wrote to the second name, which was Mars Lindgren. Within 10 minutes, I got a response. Oh, my. And then I said, hey, uh, I'm curious, uh, where did you get this? And he said, oh, I obtained them from the solar telescope. We have, it's a uh, very rapid uh, imaging, uh, uh, shuttering at like uh, 20, 30 frames a second. I don't remember. 
uh, and uh, he was taking the short press pictures. I said, hmm, I'd like to know more about it. Uh, so before I get the next uh, response, he took time to look me up on the web. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then uh, he uh, said, oh, it looks like you have some software. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you, your resume is fairly extensive, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, uh, anyway, the, the, the next story is that he ended up bringing his data to Madison. Oh. Uh, and uh, he, he literally came with a small suit. Uh, smaller than that uh, 20-inch uh, carry-on. Really? He showed up. I picked him up at the airport. I put him up uh, at the uh, Union South. Uh, we have some guest rooms there. And uh, the next day, he came in bright and early, and he started working. And for the next five or six days, he worked like uh, 12, 15, 16 hours a day. And we had an AI external. I, we figured out how to import his uh, images into my software system and we were able to navigate them and track them and uh, it took about uh, maybe one or two days to do that and we said okay uh, at night uh, you know we can just let it run and uh, I mean he had like uh, a few thousand images he was taking a, you know literally in the time available uh, or the, uh, he had I don't remember how many but several two three thousand images so we had a lot to process I said, well, let's just uh, start a batch process uh, and in the morning uh, uh, see what's happened. Well, in the morning we came in and the whole process had stopped after about 10 minutes. Couldn't figure out why. We started again during the day and the same thing happened. And it turned out that the operating system had a timeout function. If you didn't touch the keyboard, we didn't touch the uh, keyboard went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing went down. Well, that took a while to resolve. Uh, but uh, once we got it, uh, we uh, 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 got some uh, uh, data that we could uh, analyze quantitatively, and then we quickly realized that uh, we could measure the parallax. And so we inferred that uh, the geometry was such that the debris went very high in the atmosphere, much higher than people. Uh, uh, admit, and we have far more images uh, than uh, Hubble ever did. Hmm. And uh, because the navigation uh, uh, is uh, not easy for these ground-based images, including Hubble, uh, it took a while. But we think that uh, we could, uh, because we could track some of the plumes for at least three rotations of Jupiter, at least some of the early ones. Uh, the early impacts that occurred on that thing, like 15th of July, 94? Yeah. Something like that. 15th or 12th. I think it's 15th. 15th or 27th. That occurred over like a week period, I think. Uh, and so we could uh, uh, measure the debris, you know, follow it. Uh, and uh, Yeah, because the, the, uh, the debris on Jupiter lasted quite, really quite a while, a lot longer than anybody thought. It lasted two or three months, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think these were blue filter images, I recall. I don't remember the link at this point. Uh, but in any case, we were able to follow them for uh, more than two or three rotations. And so we could see them from uh, uh, limb to limb. And so we could measure the parallax because we knew uh, what the longitude was at the central meridian. And if it was higher, then the apparent longitude would be different on the uh, terminator on the right or on the limb. And uh, so I said, gee, I mean, you know, by that difference, we could tell that the 
altitude had to have been noticeably high. And so he got a lot of good data and he did his thesis and uh, published it. And then unfortunately, I didn't have any funding, so we couldn't pursue anything more beyond that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to collect data from the other observatories to fill in the holes when La Palma couldn't uh, observe. And uh, that's when uh, the, I think this was July, and I suspect in September, October, there was a, a meeting of the Madison Astronomical Society here, locally, actually it was at the Monoateras. And Don Parker was coming. Oh. And uh, there was a gentleman here with the uh, society. Uh, uh, there was uh, Bob Weir and uh, I have another senior moment here. His name I can't uh, recall right away. Uh, but uh, I have been working with the local amateur astronomers uh, uh, for various things, not just Jupiter. Uh, but uh, even uh, Venus observations. So he said, hey, uh, he told Don that you must uh, uh, meet this because earlier I had been, uh, uh, I guess, sort of become famous for uh, measuring the winds on Jupiter following clouds from the mm -hmm. Voyager data and published the highest resolution latitudinal uh, profile in uh, about almost 10 years earlier. Uh, and I had heard of Don's name, but I had never actually uh, met him in person. And, I bet that was uh, fun. <laughs> oh, it was fun. So Don actually came along. I showed him all uh, the stuff I had. We got, got along with fine. He invited me to visit him uh, in Florida. And we, uh, how should I put it? It was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Well, Don, Don uh, was a great guy. Yeah. So at least in my memory, that's when the professional amateur collaboration began. Of course, Don was, uh, you know, very capable. Uh, and, uh, and that's when you got involved with the ALPO as well? That's when I, I think the following year there was a, uh, uh, in uh, Florida, at the, one of the keys, the Marathon Key, there was a, uh, I don't know what was it called, not Astrocon. Uh, what was that meeting? 95 February, March, something. Mm. Not so I went down there and talked about uh, Shimiko Levy, and then uh, that's when I met uh, Kelly Beatty, and because of Don, and Don knew everybody, right? Yeah, he did. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I uh, of course, I've been uh, reading uh, Kelly's uh, byline, but uh, that's where uh, we got to meet Kelly and the other. Uh, uh, community, uh, Carl and uh, another fellow from uh, uh, Chicago who had brought his telescope, I think, uh, in the back of his uh, car in the trunk. <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my memory here. But he used to, he, he had been working on Don's uh, telescope, the 20-inch uh, at the uh, Yerkes, not Yerkes, the the Adler Planetariums in the basement they had a yeah. glass shop and uh, they had redone Don's telescope, the 20 inch mirror. Uh, they had re uh, repolished it or uh, something like that. And so there was a, I think somebody has a one hour or two hour long video of that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'd be nice <laughs> to get a hold of. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, it'll, his name will come to me right now, I just can't uh, recall it. Okay. 
But right. uh, unfortunately, that glass slab was shut down that badly. Uh, and then, uh, so after that, I started going to these uh, conventions, and then Don got me involved with Alpo and became the Jupiter advisor, and then the, got me on the board later on. And I came to some of the board meetings, but lately, unfortunately, I can't believe for the last several years, I always have some other meeting that I need to go to, and uh, I haven't been able to do it. Uh, but it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity for me to, you know, work with the amateurs. And in, in 98, I hosted the Division for Planetary Sciences Conference here in Madison and Devonalakaras. And that's when we organized the first uh, session. And we had a small room with capacity for maybe 25, 30 people, and uh, we had the overflow crowd. People were standing, and uh, that was a miscalculation. So many people came. And that led to uh, some activities that still continue on. And Augustine Sanchez, Lavega, Glenort, and these people uh, took up uh, took up the activity, and they uh, were collaborating more. And now more people are involved with the uh, plans. I've done my bit uh, to maintain focus on maintenance because since uh, almost 2005, six. Uh, almost last dozen years, I've been working almost exclusively on Venus. So I have uh, not had much time to pay attention to uh, Jupiter and the outer planets, uh, Saturn for sure, but uh, this less for Uranus and Neptune. But Richard Schmody has been uh, active. Right. And uh, Julius and many other Alpo observers. Uh, you know, the challenge back then was. Uh, and let's see, I'll have to find out uh, what year it was. Uh, around 1990, I think, just before Galileo orbiter flew past Venus, uh, uh, Pierre Rossart uh, from Pigdomiri had uh, captured uh, the night glow of Venus at one micron. And that was the first time an amateur, uh, not an amateur, but a ground-based telescope had seen the uh, emissions uh, a post uh, IR uh, detection by uh, 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 David Allen and uh, Crawford. You know, they, they they were trying to calibrate their IR instruments, so they turned to Venus because they knew it was a hot uh, object, and they suddenly saw detail when they were expecting it, and so that was a surprise. So, uh, after that, nobody had tried to do it uh, with a CCD, and Pietro Sard did it from Pigdemiri, and then uh, other people, uh, there was an observer from France who did it with a 20-inch telescope, and then smaller and smaller, and now even Frank Melillo uh, from New York has uh, done it with a uh, even smaller telescope, I think. And so I wrote up a column in, like a challenge in uh, Sky and Telescope some years back. Uh, like, uh, and, you know, try imaging the night glow of Venus. So now uh, many people have done it. Uh, and uh, then for Akatsuki and Venus Express, we tried to have a, an organized uh, uh, collection of uh, amateur uh, images of Venus at uh, UV wavelengths. Uh, and Venus is difficult uh, to image at UV for many other people because of the filters. But now many people are getting uh, decent contrast uh, even at uh, uh, green and orange wavelengths. Uh, and so they're continuing that effort with Akatsuki. There's a 
uh, website that I think I had sent to Julius and uh, I hope people continue to send data because uh, Akatsuki is now in an 11 day orbit and it cannot observe Venus continuously and occasionally it is, uh, show up in the data that uh, are uh, interesting. I mean, a few years ago there was this bright spot and that got written up, uh, there were stories on the web People wondered if it was a volcanic eruption. We went and searched the Venus Express data, and sure enough, there was a bright cloud. But it turned out it wasn't a volcano, because uh, even brighter clouds have been seen, and uh, in the Venus Express uh, UV images. And typically, what happens is that the process images take a, f a few days, or sometimes even a week or two, uh, before they are available. Uh, so there's a time lag, you know, I might sure see it first and they report it and then we go look for something. So in that sense, the collaboration works well uh, because uh, you can't always uh, be on top of the pipeline 24 hours a day. Uh, so if I sure see something, then we know what to go look for. So it's a very useful contribution that the amateur astronomers make. Yeah, and that's the that's thing. I, I don't think a lot of beginning amateur astronomers realize that their telescope could uh, really do scientific work, and that's really where the AOPOs all started. Was you know generating systematic observations of various you know, solar system objects and submitted them to get published. But then a lot of you know, early on, the professional community realized what the AOPO was doing, and like you said, we are filling in the gaps of the yeah, spacecraft. The yeah. And one one uh, uh, aspect of the amateur data that uh, I tried to uh, do something about, uh, but uh, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, we didn't get the uh, uh, support we needed. Uh, is that uh, typically uh, you? Uh, I mean, for planetary data, it's no longer sufficient just to have an image. You want to be able to locate latitude, longitude, which means you need to be able to navigate it. And to be able to handle the data, we need more than you know, JPEGs or TIFFs. So you, it is better to uh, have the data in uh, some digital format uh, that you can uh, process, uh, like a uh, uh, FITS format or something. Right. So, or just a PDS format, but basically a flat file with some header information. And the biggest problem we had was uh, in getting the data in a standard format, uh, like a fixed format, uh, was the timestamp. Even though many amateurs, especially the AVSO people, uh, do uh, sync their uh, uh, telescope clocks with uh, a time signal, the trouble is that most of the uh, software they use to process the images ends up using the time when they process the images as the time stamp. Oh. It creates havoc. And for Jupiter, uh, I could tell if they had made an error of more than a few seconds because uh, at least on Jupiter what you can do is uh, check the time and then look for the moons right. uh, if they're running and then look for the shadows and check, their, uh, check the position of the moon or the position of the shadow or both to verify the time. But on Venus you don't have that uh, ability. There are moons, no shadows. But on Jupiter, you can uh, verify uh, within uh, uh, God, it's been at least 20 years since I've done it, so I don't want to code it. But certainly, better than a minute, you can verify the time. Right. Even from a small 
uh, you know, like a uh, hundred uh, pixel radius Jupiter image. If you see any moons, you can verify the time whether the date and the time are correct. Yeah, I, I work for NASA, and I know when we've worked with uh, amateurs in the past, the, the amateurs, we would love to fix our images. We love to process them to, to wonderful levels to make beautiful yeah. pictures. But the image that professionals want to see is, like you said, the, 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 the raw fits image. Yeah, I mean, if process image is okay, but I still want to be able to navigate it. Right. Uh, you know, like Damien Peach. You know, he produces such beautiful images. Right. Uh, basically... I now have a huge uh, 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 reluctance to overcome before I go to a telescope and try to image myself. I'll just wait for Damien. That's, I, I feel the, the, the few Saturn photographs he's got floating around right now, I'm like, Hubble? <laughs> no, Damien Peach. Oh, really? And outside my door, I have a picture from uh, a one-meter telescope at New Mexico State uh -huh. that Jack Smith had taken. Of Jupiter, and these were the best images of Jupiter 40 years ago. Right. And they're so crummy. <laughs> I mean, even I can do better just from a 15-inch telescope now. Right, right, right. That's <laughs> but that's the beauty of the CCD. And uh, and I must say that you know I owe it to Don because he taught me how to use uh, Registax. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was at his home, met his wonderful granddaughter. <laughs> uh, Maureen was wonderful. Uh, she was a delight, and she. Was so supportive of him, it was incredible, and I am so sorry that she passed away. But right, right. me to he did, and then I didn't realize Don was in such bad shape. Yeah. I've been promising him that okay, I'll come he down. He was and always see. so happy and jovial. Oh God, you know he he masked his illness so much yeah. that I really didn't realize, and it was a shock when I yeah. learned. Same. Well, I think a lot of us feel that way. What are some of the areas that you th when you think of professional and amateur astronomy collaboration, where do they work best? I think uh, certainly in uh, the variable stars, uh, it has worked well probably, I think, uh, but I'm not involved in that much uh, community, uh, okay. with, with that community as much. In uh, planets, I mean, because I, like I said, I'm just basically living, breathing Venus 24 hours a day. <laughs> uh, uh, there, uh, Venus is a, a tough t object for uh, even professional uh, observatories. Many of the observatories, uh, well, most of them are uh, way too big to really monitor Venus, uh, even at uh, higher wavelengths. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't get enough time for to observe Venus. So there is a, a real need for improved uh, coverage of Venus. I mean, Venus is so mysterious. I mean, it really is. It is now being held up. Uh, Steve Kane from San Francisco State gave a talk at a workshop in uh, Cleveland at NASA Glenn. And he, uh, his first, uh, he started out by making an apology. And he said, that, you know, we exoplanet scientists have ignored Venus for way too long. And we realize what Venus has to teach us. And uh, that's true of uh, most of the exoplanet people who came from uh, astrophysics, not from planetary science. Many of them do not even know how much we know and what questions we have about Venus and they, yet they're going after uh, uh, telling the community, oh, we can, all we can do is just observe the spectrum and we can tell everything uh, there is to know about uh, the exoplanets. Well, nonsense. You know, right now we don't even know what causes the absorption on Venus. It's been 50, 60 years since it was discovered. 
and we still can't uh, uh, identify any substance that is responsible for creating the contrast on Venus. Yeah, and that's just contrast from spectrum, okay? <laughs> uh, and uh, the no higher resolution spectrum uh, uh, has been able to identify any substance. So we are forced to use the uh, in-situ data from uh, the meager intercourse that have uh, uh, entered Venus and uh, two balloons. And right now we are focusing on uh, trying to get uh, a semi-buoyant airplane developed uh, that could uh, survive in the clouds of Venus for up to a year, certainly a few months to a year. Oh my goodness. Uh, just travel from day to night and make keep making circuits and find out what is going on because the there may be more than one species that is absorbing. And uh, it probably changes as a function of local time uh, and uh, sunlight. Now, on the nights as things change, uh, the reflectivity of Venus is different. Uh, so there are chemical changes taking place, and, uh, and the latest uh, idea, and I'm about to submit a paper to astrobiology, is uh, that there could be microorganisms which are responsible because in the in the atmosphere of Venus. Yeah, huh. Venus has a habitable zone. Carl Sagan had first proposed the notion. Uh, in 1967, Morowitz, Hal, Harold Morowitz and Sagan have a paper in Nature in 1967. Of course, at that time, we didn't know much about Venus, and their original uh, con uh, concept uh, was a little bit uh, misplaced. But nevertheless, the habitable zone exists in the clouds of Venus. We know that. And uh, uh, I mean, this was post-Mariner, too, so they knew the surface was, was hot. But they postulated that, that there was a water cloud. Uh, but then in 1999, Charles Coquel uh, looked into the possibility of life and he came up with, our, uh, with the conclusion that yes, life indeed was uh, feasible. Then Schulz McCook and uh, David Greenspoon talked about it a few years later and then basically uh, the interest died. Until a few years ago, I was at uh, ESTEC, the ESA's uh, technical center in Nordwijk. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was doing a teacher's workshop. I gave a talk on. We have a cloud tracking activity that we developed as an education outreach activity for schools. And we hope uh, even amateurs can use it. Uh, we are trying to uh, get it online <clears throat> as quickly as we can. Uh, there's no funding for it, of course. Uh, but anyway, at that workshop, I talked about, uh, you know, I was training teachers on how to use this uh, applet that we have developed. And. Uh, I gave an introductory talk about Venus and you know, clouds. This is uh, what we see here, how they move, and we are tracking them, and we don't know what those contrast features are. And for all I know, they could be a bacteria. That's all just a throwaway comment I had. After my talk, uh, one gentleman <laughs> came up to me and he said, For my thesis, I was measuring the spectrum of a bacteria, and it has an absorption spectrum in UV. I said, oh, Really? And, you know, uh, I got busy, but he emailed me the paper. I looked at the spectrum, the absorption spectrum of thiobacillus, and I said, oh, my God, this matches <laughs> Venus a little too close. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> What's going on? So that idea has been building up. And then last year, I was on a uh, uh, astrobiological trip uh, uh, where a 
the student had been coming to Venus uh, Exploration Working Group meetings, and he said, Sir, please come. Please come here. That's why he always calls me, Sir. I said, I'm not an astrobiologist. Probably I want to come and have an astrobiology field trip. He said, No, no, please come. You'll enjoy it. I said, Okay, okay fine. I'll go and I'll just treat it as a vacation. I've never been to northern India to 18,000 feet. Uh, I had to make sure that I could survive a pressure of 540 millibars. Oh, wow. <laughs> 5,100 meters, high, highest altitude. And we went uh, to a various few sites. I mean, I did some uh, uh, <clears throat> research and found out that there were these uh, 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 hot springs, thermal springs, and uh, I thought they could be acidic. I said, hmm. Maybe they're actually can, maybe it'll tell me something about Venus. Let's go, go find out if they have life. Well, we went, we went to those thermal springs and all of them turned out to be uh, almost uh, neutral. I mean, not acidic. I said, okay, there goes that idea. <laughs> and uh, on the very last day, uh, second to last day, we were at a lake, high altitude lake at about 5,000 some meters. It was uh, late afternoon, uh, one month late, early afternoon, like one o'clock, two o'clock. Sunny day warm, dry, and we were on the shore of a lake, and there were these white deposits, didn't know what they were at that time. The wind gusts came and suddenly salt dust got picked up and got carried up, and bingo! <laughs> and the question came, could this have occurred on Venus when Venus was drying up? And so that led to the idea and we are trying to uh, publish it. Let's see what happens. Oh my goodness! That, well, because Mars has always been the sexy planet, <laughs> and you know, early, I remember years. Oh, Venus? No, it's a it's a dead world. It's it's a it's it's a, a you know, greenhouse effect. All you see is clouds. You know, and everybody's focus was Mars because Mars was the sexy planet. Now, holy crap! What you're well, telling me about okay, Venus? So, so, so let me tell you something more. Uh, uh, last year, uh, Michael Way from NASA Garter mm-hmm. published a paper. Uh, and the title is, Was Venus the First Habitable Planet? And in that paper, he argued that Venus could have harbored a liquid water ocean for up to two billion years. That's way longer than Mars ever could have. That's way longer. <laughs> and uh, then, at the same time, uh, completely underrated, Jim Head has been going to the Antarctic for the last several years, he and his uh, students. And as you know, the pendulum has been going back and forth was Mars uh, warm and wet or cold and dry. Mm-hmm. And there have been some numerical modeling uh, experiments going on, Francois Forger in France, and uh, the Mars climate models cannot keep and maintain Mars as warm and wet. Mars is basically dry and cold most of the time. Only in uh, uh, spring and summer, uh, some of the uh, areas, the equatorial areas, they get warmed up and uh, ice uh, freezes, water, uh, I mean, then have liquid water and then it just basically flows downslope and that's what Jim had observed in the Antarctic and uh, his argument is that uh, uh, Mars water is very episodic, uh, only annual and most of the surface features that we see are uh, created uh, by just transient uh, flowing of water. And so that makes Mars a very difficult uh, planet to have uh, evolved life on its own. 
and Jim Head in Cleveland. He actually came out and said, and I'm trying to quote as accurately as I can. He said, I'm sick and tired of NASA announcing for the 75th time that we have discovered water on Mars. And I firmly believe that we'll discover life on Venus before we discover life on Mars. Wow. That's a quote from Jim Head. Wow. You cannot get any more uh, respectable uh, no. geologist than Jim Head. That's, that's pretty wild. Well, okay. And so he's on board. So let's see what happens. So anyway, I've uh, spoken way too long. Uh, uh, you can uh, edit as much as you want. No, this, this is interesting. <laughs> it's, it's a little off topic from the pro-am stuff, but I'm I'm really yeah. intrigued by this. I mean, this is... Well, it's, 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 yes it's, and no, in the sense that, you know, uh, my, my argument is that uh, we cannot get enough time on uh, the professional telescopes to really monitor continuous right. Venus. It's only actors who uh, help us there. Yeah. Something happens on humans. Yeah, I, I, there, there are a couple. If I if I can just change there for a minute, there are a couple like computer programs that have been used in the past for pro am collaboration too, like Stardust at Home. Yeah, Windjup is another one that Wind- has been uh, used for Jupiter. Right, uh, right, right. Some people in uh, Europe uh, working all their computers uh, together to do observations. It's pretty interesting. I mean, what do you see? When you look, pull out your 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 crystal ball for professional and amateur collaboration. What do you see in the future? You know, we actually tried. To, we uh, I think we I don't recall if we submitted a proposal to NASA or not. But I think uh, we tried to submit it or at least create the right proposal to uh, collect the amateur data and put it in a uh, standard format and uh, perhaps even enter it into the planetary data system. Uh, but that's a very uh, serious step in that you really have to go through a peer review for the data. Mm-hmm. But at the very least, I think standardizing uh, the uh, format in which the data can be submitted. And uh, the uh, people working with the Akatsuki uh, mission, Javier Tarata, who worked with uh, Agustin Sanchez La Vega in Spain, uh, they came up uh, with a very decent scheme. So I think something like that would be needed. Beyond that, I think uh, some years ago there was a concept of uh, using remote telescopes. You know, the Fox telescope and some of the other ones, Yerkes did that with Hanson Universe project. Uh, I tried to work with Carl Pinnpecker and try to get some funding to uh, create a, uh, a sidecar for that program for planets because the emphasis for the Hanson Universe is mostly, uh, you know, supernovae and things like that, not for planets. And the software needs to be a little bit different. But the idea of remote telescopes, I think that still is a viable idea because uh, you can then connect with the schools across uh, time zones from different parts of the world. And introducing astronomy in schools is a serious, serious challenge. In Madison, just uh, two days ago, somebody contacted me because there's a uh, telescope uh, that school district had built. Nobody's using it, it's just collecting dust. Mm. It's in the middle of a forest. Uh, how do we get to use it? Well, you know, it, it's a half an hour, 45 minute drive to go out there, which means uh, middle school, high school students have to take sufficient time out of their after school hours. A teacher has to go with them because they're underage, and you know, it becomes a uh, field trip. Right. Uh, whereas if you had uh, the ability to connect to a scope uh, eight, ten uh, hours uh, away in a different time zone, and you could exchange time, then you could uh, do astronomy in the, uh, in the school hour. 
So that I think that idea never really came to fruition, but it's worth pursuing. At least that's what I see. I mean, it's becoming easier uh, with the with developments uh, with the web. I mean, you know, uh, back in 20 years ago, many of the, the tools were just getting uh, developed. Uh, and the idea of an amateur telescope uh, hanging off the space station, uh, that was discussed in Alpo at some point. Oh, I remember that. That was years ago, yeah. Uh, that never went anywhere. No, no, that's that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money, uh, but you know, now there are other players, uh, right? If you just want to throw a telescope, I mean, there's uh, 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 SpaceX and God knows yep. any other companies, so... That's true. I, uh, I, we should contact Elon Musk and say we should do this. Yeah, and you know, especially uh, you know when they, they take the cargo up to the ISS, mm-hmm. uh, can you throw something off a small telescope? Interesting <laughs> idea. Well, Sanja, I got to tell you, this has been enlightening and interesting, and I really enjoyed chatting with you. All right, uh, it's been fun for me, and I'm really sorry I haven't been able to be as connected with Alpo recently as I would like to be. Uh, but uh, we'll get there. I think Venus, uh, I'm looking forward to making some progress uh, with both the amateur data and with the missions. Great. Now, how can everybody get a hold of you? They would like to chat with you about life on Venus or other things. Uh, email is best <laughs> because I travel a fair amount, uh, which is why I have not been able to make to most of the meetings. So email is best, and you have my email, Sanjayal at SSCC. Actually, let me give you an easier one. SSLimaya at WISC.edu. That's W-I-S-C.edu. All right, and I will add that I will add that to the show notes along with a little introduction to yourself and a chat about this conversation. I really appreciate it again, Sanjay, for coming on. My pleasure, and I'm sorry it took a while for us to connect. And send me the URL wherever it is posted, and we can make a link to our outreach page which is at venus.wis.edu we will do that well that'll do it for this episode of the observer's notebook podcast i really want to thank our special guest sanjay lemehe for coming on and talking about uh, a few things, not only professional and amateur collaboration, but also well, possible life on Venus. That was something that we started chatting about that I had no idea, but that was a great topic. I hope you enjoyed it. We upload a new episode of The Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. That's how we bring more listeners to the podcast. You can hear us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes, and we're also available on Stitcher and Google Play. Just about anywhere you can find a podcast, that's where we are. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. For $5 a month, you get early access to the podcast. For $10 a month, you receive the Observer's Notebook Handbook, uh, the official, I'm sorry, the Novice Observer's Handbook, the official handbook of the ALPO training program that I wrote. And for $35 a month, you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or 
on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. If you want to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. The ALPO has a Facebook page. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. Sign up and start following us there. The ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, the moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.